0: Welcome back, my friends, to the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. On today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews, my longtime friend, Paul D., shares his story of drinking, getting sober, and then nearly dying from the disease 35 years into sobriety. After his older brother and sister died of liver disease caused by IV drug use and largely untreated alcoholism, Paul's own liver disease surfaced years after he entered AA. The irreparable damage he had done with heroin and heavy drinking in his teens and twenties persisted, only to drop him at death's door three years ago. With zero liver function and two failed transplants, his journey seemed at an end. But a last-minute liver transplant followed by additional surgeries and 17 days in the ICU helped Paul hang on to life. Since then, his vitality has been restored. Paul credits his higher power in the prayers and presence of his AA Fellowship for his own survival. Today he is more active than ever in his program. His experience and hard work in sobriety, both before and after his transplant, put his own past into sharp focus. Ardent step work with a no-nonsense sponsor helped him understand the dysfunction in his family of origin and his own history of loneliness and isolation. Without shutting the door on the past, Paul gained valuable insights into his own behaviors, both before and after joining AA. He also realized the absolute importance of meetings, service work, and fellowship after enduring a number of glum years during which sparse participation in the program took its toll. As a cautionary tale, Paul's story is one of the best at illustrating the ups and downs of sobriety. That his present-day story is one of unquestionable reliance on a higher power in AA is proof positive of the redemptive power available to all who seek solution in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful Paul is alive today to share his experience, strength, and hope with listeners of AA Recovery interviews. So, I invite you to sit back and enjoy the next hour and 10 minutes with my good friend and AA brother, Paul D. My name is Paul, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for being on AA Recovery Interviews, the podcast. And you and I are just coming out of probably one of my favorite meetings in the city of Houston that you've been a regular in for a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. And so when you got called on tonight, I thought, oh, let me let me go like this because I know I'm going to be interviewing Paul after the meeting and I didn't want anything that you said there to influence what I said here. But then I thought... You've got such a rich and colorful story. There's nothing you could say in three minutes that could possibly illuminate the rest of your story. Mm. And I've heard your story for years and it's been really amazing. How long have you been sober now? 38 years and a month. Now, let me ask you something. What I noticed tonight, there were guys sitting in the room, one guy with five months, another guy with four months. And I remember when I was sitting in this very room when I had that amount of time and the old timers, of which you and I would be considered the old timers in the room tonight, whenever they talked, I, I, just there was something about it, I thought, how can anybody get 20 years of sobriety? How can anybody get 10 years of sobriety? It's like I couldn't identify. When you first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, what did you think about a guy who had 38 years? Well, my
1: first meeting, the, um, the most senior person in the room was Mary Ellen, she had 10 years. And- that was mind-boggling to me, that somebody could actually stay sober. To me, a week would have been a long time. It just wasn't in my nature not to drink. I mean, I tried. I'd quit for eight hours. You know, I <laughs> would never make it a day. I just wouldn't make it a day.
0: When you were drinking, did you ever try to prove the, to yourself that you could stop by stopping for a period of time and then starting up, feeling pretty good or smug or whatever you felt that. I'm not an alcoholic. I stop for X number of hours or days or weeks or months.
1: No, for me, I'd stop drinking certain things. So I went from whiskey to beer. That, that to me was stopping drinking. You know, if I just quit drinking, you know, scotch every day, then and just drank beer. That'd be okay. And then I would drink so much beer after a while that I. The next thing I decided to do was drink quarts. I would instead of buying a twelve pack, I'd go and I'd buy a. A quarter quart two. And I drink those. Those are those are my tried attempts at controlled drinking to prove that I wasn't a drug. Yeah. And I could actually do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could last a day anyway. But the next, what, what started to happen would, my, my day started out taking Valium in the morning because I, I shook all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'd make it to lunch and then I'd have like a, I'd run across the street to a U-Totem, grab it. You know, a tall boy, right? Mm-hmm. Six dollars beer. Drink that really quickly and then go back to work. Then i have a couple beers on the way home. I lived in Rosenberg and I was commuting. So it took me an hour, an hour and 10 minutes to get home every day. So I'd drink on the way home. Then I'd go to my control drinking.
0: Once you got home. Once
1: I got home, yeah. But I was already three, four drinks into the day. Plus some Valium, too. So. Yeah. Wow,
0: that's, that sounds like a hell of a way to be living. And that was my control time. That was your control time? Yeah, that was when I was trying to manage it. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about your out-of-control time because <laughs> that's usually <laughs> the progression of the illness is really, is really interesting. All the interviews I've done, everybody has their own progression. But one of the things I've noticed is that there's a strong correlation with people starting drinking when they're young and also then becoming an alcoholic along the way. Although I'm sure I could probably talk to nine out of 10 people on the streets who had a drink at 14 who never became alcoholics. But how old were you when you had your first taste of alcohol?
1: You know, I try to remember the day and the the age, but I think it was 12 or 13. And uh, we stole a six pack of Carling Black Label beer. It was warm. I mean, it tasted awful but i finished that first can of beer and i remember thinking you know, i finished that and, and to me it was magical because all of a sudden anything i felt was gone hmm. all those feelings just growing up in my life i was the youngest of three uh-huh and we were all a year apart they hated me i was the youngest and i mean i was just always alone yeah i was hated i was the Tor- tormented me. They tortured me. They did all kinds of stuff to me. It's just the way it was, being the youngest of the three and being a year apart. It was always them two against me. So they thought I was the spoiled one because I, the baby of the family. So I got special treatment. So they didn't like that at all.
0: Was that behavior they were copying from your parents? No, they just did it. I, I, no,
1: my my father, he was gone all the time. Worked. Yeah. And my mother was a was a stay at home mom except for a period of about six months, she had had a health something go on where we had somebody that came in and watched us during the day. It was pretty much still... I just remembered being alone a lot, playing alone a lot, doing a lot of things by myself. A lot of isolation. Yeah, a lot of isolation stuff. And, uh, you know, when Little League and all that, I did all that stuff and had little friends around, but Mm -hmm. my father was never there. He was always working. Hmm. When he came home, if he came home when we were awake he would have dinner alone because we'd have already eaten because he'd come home like at seven Mm -hmm. and then he would come home and he'd go in his room he'd have one drink Mm -hmm. i remember him have he'd always have a drink smoke cigarettes and read a book then he'd come out eat dinner and he'd
0: go back did he ever visit with you guys at all i don't
1: remember that at all the one one story i remember my father doing something with me was in the summertime we swam in the pool together and he taught me how to swim Mm.
0: it was
1: the only story i can remember where it was one-on-one with my father wow in my lifetime. Wow. That was it. I
0: mean, so... That must have been pretty tough when you were a little kid. Well, it just was normal. Yeah. Looking, so like it didn't seem not
1: tough. It just seemed normal. Yeah. So nothing like that seemed like anything.
0: So you were isolated, your dad didn't interact with you, and you had two older siblings who were terrorizing you, and w- were they physically beating you? And
1: No, but... Uh, well, my brother was... You know, he pushed me around a bit, and my sister would until I could take care of myself. So
0: you were getting picked on?
1: Picked on all the time, relentlessly, as long as I can remember. God, that's rough. I just remembered it all the time. So you have to think, now, I was 4'11", weighed 95 pounds when I graduated high school. So I was always really small. Yeah. So my whole life was a series of being picked on. So I learned how to fight and take care of myself in any way I could to survive. Mm -hmm. So I would get in fights all the time as a young kid. uh, Did you win? No, I never won. I always got beat up, but I I always hit back. So I was scrappy. Uh So eventually people stopped because I wasn't worth the trouble. So people just kind of left me alone. But what that did was it got me to where the people who wanted me around were the people that were doing stuff, like getting in trouble all the time. Uh The kids I went and drank with that first night, we drank. I got drunk. We climbed up onto this building. We're standing on the—we're sitting at the— pyramid of a building uh-huh. overlooking a road, and the police call us down, and they drive me home. So my first experience drinking was getting taken home by the police. And of course, coincidentally, my last drink, I got taken to jail by the police, so pretty much everything between there was just a calamity of stuff.
0: When you were 13 years old and the police took you home, what were the consequences? What did your parents say or do? It
1: was wait till my father got home, and then by the time my father got home, I was already asleep. And that was it? That was pretty much it. Huh. Was the fear of that, but I was pretty scared. Yeah. I fell
0: did you get any lectures from your mother or your father? Not really. Just got get in here we're really disappointed, blah, 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 that kind of stuff.
1: Nothing nothing major that impacted me. Okay. What I still remember to this day is how it made me feel. Yeah. All of a sudden I didn't feel alone. All of a sudden I felt part of something.
0: Because you were acting out? I don't know. It's
1: what alcohol did to me. Alcohol made me bigger, taller, stronger. Everything, all the things i didn 't think about me, alcohol did huh. made me good with the girls. It just did everything for me, yeah, on my own i didn 't have any confidence, small, alone, drinking, tall, strong, handsome, mm-hmm. everything, so it just it changed my world so alcohol was a lot to me. And what I ended up doing was just switching that from alcohol. I just started, I mean, drugs were a big deal then. Right. My story gets, becomes a drug addiction story for a while. And uh, so I got involved with that as I got older, 15, 16, 17.
0: But you were drinking with this group of kids... And we promoted to drugs. And you promoted to drugs. Was was this the same group you hung with in junior high and high school? Was it a particular group or were there different groups that you hung were with? were different
1: groups. So I started with one group and then I progressed to another group and then I progressed to another group.
0: It just changed. So to be part of whatever group that you were in, you I had did to, whatever they did. You had to do what they did. Yeah. Was there ever a sense that you needed to do more to prove yourself to them? Or did you ever find yourself wanting to drink more or whatever to prove that you were they're yeah. equal or better than them.
1: One of the things that we decided to try to do, mm-hmm. some people were doing they were using needles. And so that was something I was willing to do. So when, when we were talking about did we want to do that, my hand was the first one up. Yeah,
0: let's do that. And then we did. Were you smoking pot along with that? Was there some kind of gateway into the harder of drugs? Or what was that progression like?
1: Well, we started smoking pot and You know, I found that I could get the exact same thing I got from alcohol when I was younger with pot. So there was a period of time where most of my, you know, I I either did drugs or I drank. And, you know, and as I got older, I found that what I wanted to do was I wanted to drug more, especially at 17, 16, 17. So I did my first drug rehab when I was 17 years old in 1972. Um, I went there because we were sticking needles in our arm, and I mean, they called the high school I went to in the newspaper "Heroin High." You know, it's that kind of stuff. So, we were pretty well known. we were a bunch of white kids, yeah, shooting heroin, which wasn't normal back in 1972.
0: Well, I'm curious, how did things progress to heroin?
1: Became available. Let's try it.
0: Huh? You
1: know, we always wanted to try the next thing. Went from acid, not pot, to taking LSD, to, you know, what's the next thing? We tried. Doing speed didn't like speed. Yeah. made me too edgy. Yeah. Then we get things like uh, yellows and reds, things that would that would you know depressants. And I like those better. Huh. So heroin was a common thing. Was the next, pretty much the next thing to go. The next to. thing to go. Because when you stuck it in your arm and your needle, it was just instant. You didn't have to wait. That was that was the magic to it.
0: How long a period was it between when you? first started drinking and when you first started using drugs? Are we talking about a a short period of time? Well, I drank
1: 12, 13. I don't think I started smoking pot until I was 14, 15, so maybe a year or two.
0: And so by the time you were doing heroin, you were still a pretty young teenager? 17. 17.
1: Wow. Yeah, because I turned 18 in the rehab, and I stopped shooting heroin there. I never shot heroin again. It was a therapeutic community, and the goal was to stop you from sticking needles in your arm. So you lived with ex- with other needle shooters. Yeah. And it was run by people that were on recovery. So anyway, I did that for a while.
0: Was it 12-step oriented? No.
1: I, as a matter of fact, I earned a drinking privilege.
0: Really?
1: Yeah. When we left from the from the main house yeah. to the second-day house where you can get a job, yeah. you know, they took you out drinking.
0: So, oh. So it was okay. legal. So it was all about the heroin addiction, nothing acknowledging uh, alcohol and the addiction of alcohol. Nothing about that.
1: What's nothing in- about steps, nothing about recovery, nothing about God, nothing about any of that. That was really, it was a, a TC. They just, you know, break that habit. Stop sticking needles in your arm.
0: One of the people I interviewed, Jerry R., who I know you know, yeah. uh, he also was a big heroin user. And in his story, he, was, he shot heroin for many, many years and then went over to methadone. Did you have any transitional drugs? No. I just stopped. Huh. Then I just went to drinking full time.
1: Drinking became legal, so that's all I did.
0: So I've had others on the show too who went from being drug users to alcohol because it was easier to get the alcohol once they were of legal aid. Easier, cheaper. And less scary than having to go and buy something that you didn't know what it was and cut with all kinds of stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I had some instances. I had I overdosed twice. Mm. Um, I did some bad drugs that gave me a big uh, callus on my arm that they had to go surgically remove, and, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. So it was just ugly stuff. So stopping that wasn't that hard. Mm-hmm. It was just all... And, you know, I never hung out with those drug shooters again. It was interesting how that happened. Just, just, we just split apart. I went in that program, never hung out again. So my whole community changed.
0: So from the time you very first started shooting heroin until the day you stopped doing it, as a result of going through that program, how long a period of time is that? Year and a half. Year and a half. Long time when you're sixteen, seventeen. Yeah. So you were an IV drug user for sixteen. Yeah, probably two years. Was hep C affecting people at that time? That's where I got it from. So you got hep C?
1: 1972. It was my first diagnosis. They didn't call it that then. They just called it hepatitis. And they gave you an injection of a drug called gamma globulin. That was it. They gave you that. And then you never saw the doctor again. But it was viral, so it stayed there forever.
0: That's what destroyed my liver. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that too. Yeah. That's one of those six success stories about sobriety, yep. and yours is particularly poignant. Um, so you went through this drug program to stop using needles. That did not discourage you from moving over to drinking alcohol, wasn't oriented with the 12 steps. What's the picture look like after that? You've stopped heroin. You're starting upping your alcohol. I went to college. Uh-huh. And I spent
1: five years in school, uh-huh. worked full time, went to school full time, and I was a weekend warrior. Thursday nights, Friday nights, Saturday nights, back to school. So did you live on campus or did you commute? No, I commuted because I, work, I worked. I worked full time. I, I didn't have any—there was no money in my family to send us to school, so I got financial aid. I mean, I moved out of, home, I moved out of my home when I was 17 because uh-huh. I went into the program, and I never moved back home. Oh. I got an apartment after that. You were in that program itself for— About 10 months, between both programs before I finally said I just had enough. Huh.
0: What was going on in your home while all this was going
1: on with you? All three of us were sticking needles in our arms. Our house was a nightmare. So my brother got sober. My, my brother got in the program, too. My mm. sister, uh, she got arrested, and she went to a prison in Saranac, New York, and she went to a women's prison up there. She was there for about 18 months. Uh-huh. My brother... He got arrested for having a whole bunch of weed in his car or something. Uh-huh. Our family was a mess. All three of us were sticking needles in our arms. It was just ugly. My parents were crazy, and they, you know, they didn't know what to do. So we ended up in this drug program as a result of all that. My brother was there, and then I was there. He got there first, and I got there second. My brother ended up he you know, he ended up going to college, and he went to a private university and got his degree and moved to Texas. You know, I went there and. I went to school and, you know, I was a piano major in college. I think I told you that. But anyway, it didn't really dissuade me from drinking. Mm. You know, I just, drinking seemed to be a thing to do. We got married young. Mm -hmm. How did you meet your wife? Interesting. One of the things in the program that I started doing was uh, we did what we'd call peer counseling workshops, where I would go to schools and I would speak to juniors and seniors and sophomores and freshmen about the evils of using drugs.
0: This is why you're still in that program in for 10 program. months. You're yeah. doing this within that period of yep. time. Yeah. so I'm going, <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm like a, a celebrity. You know, it's kind of interesting. It <laughs> <That's laughs> was a bit of a celebrity. You know, telling my story. And, you know, talking about overdose and what that's like in hospitals, all that kind of stuff. So getting the disease and having surgery. All the ugly stuff about sticking needles in your arm where you go buy it from and the parts of town and... Uh, Getting robbed
0: and all that type of stuff. That's an exciting story to a bunch of kids in an assembly, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
1: So, anyway, I met my wife through one of these groups. She just attended and uh, we started dating anyway. We got married because I was living in an apartment, so she just moved in with me. And Italian families, Catholic Italian families, did not like that. So, we got married in 1974 and we should have been, I mean, we should have never got married. It was Com- marriage out of convenience. Mm-hmm. They just wanted us to. So school full time, work full time, no time for each other. That didn't last at all. Within a year, we were both
0: dating other people. How about the drinking in the in the marriage?
1: Uh, for me, it was uh, like I said, it was a weekend warrior more more than anything. Uh-huh.
0: Sort of like a binge drinker, yeah. or
1: yeah, because I mean I, I I was actually going to school and doing well. You know, I graduated summa cum laude and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, I actually did well in school and I worked full time. But it took me five years to get to school.
0: So you were one of those functional drinkers. But it was
1: after my first wife and I separated is when it all went bad. Because then I, there was nothing to rein me in. Hmm. I got fired. I decided to move to Texas. My brother was down here, and he was working at Maxwell House. He said, "I'll oh, come down here. I took another hostage, brought her to Houston. It was my wife number two.
0: How'd you meet her?
1: Um, I was... In school, we were was living in an apartment with two other guys, uh-huh. and uh, I met her through a friend of mine. Huh. And uh, anyway, she, we, were, we were dating, and she got in trouble or something, and all of a sudden, she didn't have anywhere to live. So I said, come on, live with me. That's pretty much <laughs> Sounds it. Sounds
0: like a recurrent pattern <laughs> there, yeah, Paul. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was a rescuer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was good at it, too.
0: yeah. Um, yeah. I
1: rescued her and brought her to Texas, you know.
0: And this was after having been married how long the first time?
1: We didn't get divorced right away, but we were probably only married about a year and a half, really. I was 20, she was
0: 18. Okay, so then you go from that to wife number two. Actually, we went to Texas in '79, got married in '81. So that period of time in between wife one and wife two, it's a lot of drinking, school, partying. Hmm. When I got out of
1: school, that's when I just drank all the time.
0: What were your plans when you were in school? Obviously, if you're going to be graduating summa or magna cum laude, you're putting in a lot of work. I was going to be a professional piano player,
1: and you can't make any money at that. So I kept having to get regular jobs. And I was good with my hands, so I ended up in factories and worked in a machine shop, you know, that kind of stuff. Came to Texas, and, uh, you know, Texas, this was, you know, 19... You have to think about it, 1978... Yeah. Upstate New York became a rust belt. Everybody was leaving. The city just died. So Texas was a movement. So I came down to the oil field.
0: That must have been a real disappointment, though, to have your heart set on being a, a concert pianist or a professional musician and it not working out. When did that realization come to you, and how did you deal with it at the time? Well, I was really good in upstate New York. Uh-huh. So I
1: decided to go down to New York City, try to make a go at it. I lasted a month. What kind of things did you do? Uh, Anything you could try to do. You just couldn't find work. It's just too hard. And they were too good. I wasn't as good as I thought I was. So the only options was become a teacher. A couple friends of mine that I went to school with, they became teachers. Uh And I didn't want to teach. It's just something I didn't want to do. So I just decided that I'm just going to be a blue-collar worker. I'm just going to go work.
0: Now, was piano a passion for you over the years? Yes, and still is. Still is. Yeah, I still
1: play all the time. I started playing when I was five. I got my father's attention playing the piano. You did? There was one thing I got from him. He'd bring friends over so I could play. And I got better than my sister and brother, and they quit. And I passed them. I was actually, I had an opportunity to go to Syracuse University when I was 14 years old. Early, because I was such a good piano player at the time. Hmm. I was one of the top three in upstate
0: New York. So they were considering you somewhat of a prodigy, huh?
1: Yeah, but drugs got in the way. Yeah. Anyway, Texas is where I really did my most, most of my drinking.
0: When you were studying at college and when you were going out to audition for piano, were you drinking in the midst of that or could you stop it long enough to so it didn't affect you?
1: I was doing okay until when I separated from my first wife and I really went downhill. And that's all I did was I drank a lot. And at that time I didn't have any energy and I found a drug called cocaine. And then I found out that if you used a needle with that it was a lot of fun. You could do it a lot. So I started doing that, and that lasted about four months. Huh. That would became constant. Dropped out of school, lost my job, everything went to hell, quit paying bills, got thrown out of the place I was going to live. Huh. Moved to Texas. Moved to Texas.
0: Yeah. So this was where you were going to start anew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Left all that behind, came down, never really did drugs again. Huh. So that addictiveness of heroin or even... What was that? uh, Crack cocaine or...? No, just regular cocaine. So, short amount of heroin use, short amount of cocaine intravenously use. You're still smoking pot along the way?
1: No, pot really didn't do anything for me
0: anymore. So, let's leave the drugs behind, move down to Texas where drinking is part of the culture.
1: Yeah, 24-7.
0: So, who did you live with when you came down?
1: My second wife, wife number two. And I commuted, so... I mean, I, I moved down to Rosenberg. Uh-huh. I commuted all the way into, all the way to Richmond and Eastside yeah, yeah. every day. She commuted downtown. She, she, uh, she worked for Foley's downtown. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were commuting all the time. Mm. She took a bus. I drove, because so we were only in one car. Mm-hmm. And I drank on the way to work, and I drank on the way home. Mm. I drank all the time.
0: Did you get pulled over very often?
1: Not until 1983. What was the circumstance there? Uh, I was was working at a company company truck, and uh, I was driving to Rosenberg. And I was literally driving with one hand over my eye because I couldn't see. And uh, when the cop pulled me over, I was like, oh, thank God. I was so drunk. I mean, I I couldn't even think straight. He went, I said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) He said, you've had a few too many. I said, oh, way too many. You know, literally just... They just arrested me. They drove my truck to the jail. They didn't even get it towed. I think because I was completely gave up, you know. Yeah. I was like, yeah, no, I'm shit-faced. I shouldn't be driving. Whatever you got to do, <laughs> just go ahead and do it. Uh, I, got, I got there. They called my spouse. She came and got me out. That was about it. The interesting thing about that, though, was I ended up having to do driver education in a 12-week class. the lady that taught that class, her name was Nancy, and she's really important. Because I met her, and I remember that I'm in the class, there's like six of us, right? The first thing they give you, they give you this quiz. If I'm reading the quiz, it says, how many days a week do you drink? And I went, well, I'm not going to write seven. So I put five. Five? Yeah. (laughs) And then it said, how much do you drink? I said, well, I'm not going to write like 12 pack a day. So maybe four or five beers a day. Uh Or a couple shots of whiskey, or maybe both. Right. (laughs) Not much. And, you know, and I I, I do this thing, and she looks at my test. She sits down. She goes, I think you might have a drinking problem. I went, no, I don't have a drinking (laughs) problem. So I went through the class, but I remember that. I remember thinking that I was giving them answers that would make them think that I wasn't bad. You know, because I drank a lot more than that, and I drank every day. So what happened was that was in 1983, almost the year to the day, I got my second DWI. This time I was still on probation for the first one. My wife leaves me in jail overnight least She uh-huh. doesn't come and get me. I just got fired from my last job for being drunk on the job So when I got a new job, it was even better than the last job
0: mm-hmm. So
1: to me it didn't matter. You no, know? I mean I got a promotion out of the deal and uh, I remember I got arrested And I went home and I called my attorney and he said You need to sleep with your clothes on because when they, they're gonna come probably about two o'clock in the morning and they're going to arrest you for, for violating probation. They're going to take you with whatever you go to the door in. She goes, so be dressed. <laughs> so I'm sleeping in my clothes, right? I'm thinking about that. But the other thing, uh, you know, I didn't know what to do. My wife's pissed. I mean, like my third day on my new job, I'm already missing because I got arrested.
0: What did the lawyer, did he, was he of any use to you at that point?
1: Uh, he, he kept me out of jail, which it turned out to be okay.
0: Yeah. But uh,
1: 1982, this is in 84. Mm-hmm. my sister was living in houston and i took her to she was to me she was a classic alcoholic drinker she was drinking vodka and orange juice you know and vodka and anything lots mm-hmm. of it i took her to the houston western club we lived over in that part of town and we went to that meeting and i sat in the back of the room you know and all the guys that come on they want to know who i am right and i said, oh, I just took her to that meeting she goes well do you think you have a problem with alcohol no, no not me so yeah, I i sat through that meeting and uh that was my introduction to AA. Huh. I never really thought about it again until I was in jail. And I thought about, Mom, I'm going to have to do something. So when I got out of jail, the first person I went to see was I went to the Council on Alcoholism where Nancy worked. Right. And I walked in the room, I knocked on the door, and I sat down. She goes, Oh, hi, Paul. What are you doing? I said, Well, you know, I'm not doing that well. And uh, she goes, Well, what can I do for you? I said, so, Well, I got arrested yesterday again. And she was looking at something. She put her book down. She put a, had a pen in her hand. She put her pen down. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me and she goes, well, Paul, I can't help you. And my thought was, wow, this is the Council on Alcoholism. They should be able to help me. She goes, I can't help you, but I can tell you who can. And I looked at her and went, in Richmond, every night of the week at 8 o'clock, there's an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting there. You need to go there. She picked up her pen and she just started writing in her book like she was done. She didn't say another word to me. And I went, wow, you bitch. And that's what I thought. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with you? I just, and I, I got up and I left and I was so angry. And this was 12 o'clock in the afternoon. But I remembered eight o'clock that night. Uh-huh. I'm five foot five, 110 pounds. Jail on me is not going to do well. So <laughs> I said, you know, maybe I'll go try that. And I went down to that meeting. That I'm 29 years old. I'm from New York. I've lived in a city my whole life. This is like a wooden plank with a hitching post out front and right. horse troughs with water. Yeah, right. you know, And you walk in, and I, and I walk into the building, I'm going, this is it. There's a blind that hangs down that's broken, so it's like crooked. And I open the door, and I go in, and it's filled with smoke. <laughs> it's, just, it's a smoky room. There's like yeah. eight people in there, and they're all 100 years old to me. I'm 29 years old, right? Uh-huh. And it's got the steps on the, on the wall and they're <laughs> yellow because there's nicotine all over them, right? Yeah. And they're yeah. ripped and they got tape on them <laughs> holding them together. And I go, oh my God, this is where I ended up. To me, my life was over. It was just over. But I didn't really feel like I had a choice because I don't want to go to jail. This was my first night after I got out of jail that day. That was that night I went to my first meeting.
0: So you got bailed out. I got bailed out in the morning. It was July 11th. And by the evening, you were sitting in an AA meeting. I was at a sitting in an AA meeting, July 11th, 1984. What was that first meeting like for you?
1: It was, uh, there was nine people there. And I told you, Mary L., was. she was, she was the leader, uh-huh. the discussion leader and the leader. And uh, she had 10 years. I remember her telling me she had 10 years. She was in there. There was an Elvis Presley lookalike guy. Literally, he had the boots and the pants and the haircut with the—he yeah, looked like <laughs> slick back hair. There was a used car salesman. His mm-hmm. name was Larry. The other mm-hmm. guy's name was Ray, Mary, and there was a couple other people I don't remember them. Mm-hmm. But I remember I sat down. They said, "Would you like a cup of coffee?" And I went, "I didn't know what to say," so I said, "Yes." So he came over, they brought over. No, I couldn't hold that cup of coffee. I was just—I was shaking so bad. It was just a bad night. But uh, one of the things they said to me was, um, if I didn't want to, I would never have to take another drink of alcohol. Hmm. And that thought struck me. It was the only thing I heard that night was that, because I thought to myself, that can't be possible. I didn't think I had a choice, Howard. I didn't have a choice about drinking. Drinking was a requirement for me. I couldn't do anything without booze at that point in my life. Hmm. Didn't matter. I couldn't go to work without it. You know, I had to do Valium just to, just to stop shaking. I didn't attribute any of that to my lifestyle. I just thought it was me. I thought there was something wrong with me. Alcohol was the only thing that made me feel good, except I quit working who knows when. I just kept doing more and more and more.
0: So you acknowledge the fact that you were drinking way too much, way, way too, too, much. too often, yeah. but yet the connection... Between the alcohol and its effect and your ability to function without it, it that, that connection never really got made. No, I couldn't,
1: I couldn't imagine life without it. I just couldn't imagine life without it.
0: So here you are sitting in an AA meeting. The day after you're, you're, you're bailed out of jail, 29 years old, you're sitting there, your life is over. Did they do anything with desire chips or yeah, anything I like that? Yeah, a
1: desire chip. Then. I, they made me get up and get it, too.
0: Did they focus the meeting on you?
1: They actually told me I was the most important person in that room. and I thought to myself was, you got that right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were ancient to me. Mm. They were like country hicks. Excuse me, but that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a city kid. I'm mm-hmm. 29 years old. There wasn't anybody in there that, to me, that was under 50. Mm. So, I mean, I had, to me, I had nothing in common with them except I heard what I heard. And what did you hear? That if I didn't want to, I, might not, I don't have to ever take another drink of alcohol.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book, if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. When you read the steps on the wall and were looking around the room, what was going through your mind? I saw the word God, but
1: oh, this is a—it's going to be a cult. I literally thought it was a cult. Yeah. And they were going to like preach God to me, and I was going to have to become a born again Christian. They had another or a doorway that went into another room, and it had a cloth shower curtain. Yeah. You know, just in the door, right? I swear, I didn't know what that happened in there. I thought mm-hmm. for some reason one of these days they were going to take me back. There, <laughs> they were like sprinkle holy water on me or something. <laughs> that's what I thought. I mean, I literally thought that. I mean, I went there for two weeks before I realized that that's just where they had the coffee stored. I had no idea. But uh, they told me all the things you hear one day at a time. Blah, blah I didn't really hear any of that stuff. But the one thing I remembered also is they said, come back tomorrow night. It's a speaker meeting. I got invited back somewhere. I haven't been invited back anywhere in a long time. so oh, That's a good feeling. I thought to myself, okay, I think I can come back here tomorrow. And I left. I went home and I didn't drink alcohol that night. And so uh, Friday I told my wife I was going to go listen to this, this, whatever the speaker meeting thing is. And she came with me. And I thought to myself, oh, okay, she's going to go. So <laughs> anyway, I sit there and I listen, and a guy named Paul P. told a story, the same name. And he told my story. He literally told my story. I thought I had a thought that there was a conspiracy that my wife met with these people <laughs> and told them shit about me. Yeah. Cuz he told my story. Hmm. He told me about you know, pissing his bed all the time cuz I get drunk every night and I just I just pee all over myself. It just it's one of those things I could I couldn't help it. Yeah. And so I I didn't think anybody did that. I didn't think anybody did that. And he told me how he felt. Uh-huh. About he felt like he couldn't function without drinking. I thought to myself, wow. Oh. That's you. And people were cutting up, laughing. He was hysterical. I'm sitting there, I'm hiding because he's mm-hmm. telling my story. And they're all laughing. Mm. I didn't understand that. So yeah, after that meeting, they said, uh, mm. there was a guy they wanted me to meet. This was Saturday night. And they said, I need to go to a meeting on Stafford. Right. And they said, well, it's at 8 o'clock. Just, just go over there. Somebody's going to meet you there. His name is Doug. And I went, okay. I don't know what this is all about, right? Uh-huh. So I go, to the, I go to that meeting. I'm a, I'm a back row sitter. It's only been day two, right? And I still haven't drank. Still haven't so, drank. So, so far, I've made it. I've made it a couple okay. of days. Still shaking bad. But so anyway, I'm sitting on the, the, the last chairs up against the wall by the door. Mm-hmm. And this guy comes in and he looks at me. And he goes, Are you Paul? And I said, Yeah. He goes, Well, my name's Doug. And we're going to go have coffee after the meeting. And I went, okay. So uh-uh. we sit through the meeting. Well, first of all, I have to say that Doug had a really thick West Texas twang. My name is Doug. Yeah, I remember Doug. Meeting gets over with. We sit down having coffee. And he says to me, he goes, well, I just have one question to ask you. And I went, okay. And he goes, are you willing to go to length to stay sober? And I said, I don't know. I have no idea what that question even means. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to answer that. And he got up and he said, well, don't waste my fucking time. And he turned around and he walked away. And I sat there and I went, wait. And he stopped, he turned around and I said, OK. I tell you, sitting here right now, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I called him back. I have no idea why. And he came back and he sat down and he went, OK. And that was it. Tomorrow you're going to pick me up at this time. Here's my address. Sounds like he saw right through you and you knew it. I don't know. I just know that something happened. That, looking back on that, that was a spiritual thing. Yeah, like a God moment. It's completely outside of me. Wow. So, I mean, that was it. And that started a relationship that, um, I mean, I hated him. I hated him. He, he, ah. Uh.
0: And he became your sponsor at that point? Yes. Yeah, I didn't even know what that was yet. Right.
1: He said, I am going to be your sponsor. Went, okay. So that's how it started. He, uh, just just sitting there, and he said, the first thing you're going to do when you get home tonight, I want you to get on your knees, put your shoes under the bed. And while you're down there, thank God for staying sober today. I said, I don't want anything to do with God. He said, I don't care. I just want you to say that. I went, okay. Do whatever he said, right? Mm-hmm. He said, and tomorrow morning when I got up, when I got down there to get my shoes, ask God to keep you sober." Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Today. I went, okay, I'll (laughs) do that. You know, and that started this relationship with this man that, you know, as I I say how much I hated him because he said shit to me like, you're not going to make it a week. He literally told me, you're not going to make it a week. There was one time he said, we were talking and I was complaining about something. He said, look, Paul, why don't you just go drink and get it over
0: with? Just go drink. You're not done yet. They don't make sponsors like that very often, do they? I don't know, but I think he knew what I needed. He was bugging the shit out of you.
1: I stayed sober to spite him for the first 90 days. Actually, it was probably the first three years. Hmm. I wasn't going to drink because I wasn't going to prove him right. Because he said multiple times I wasn't going to stay sober. Did he continue to do that? All the time. Actually, at my first birthday, he said, I don't know how you stayed sober one year, but you sure as hell won't make two. (laughs) (laughs) not a joke yeah yeah at a podium at the club in front of god and everybody you know they roasted you there but that's the way it was when i was sober five years i went back to texas i was living in boston when i got five years i got my chip and he came he was already diagnosed so he's already sick yeah and uh, he came to that meeting he said i used to tell paul all the time that he wasn't going to make it but i knew when i met him when we had coffee that he was going to make it because he made me stay Hmm. and I knew that day.
0: He goes, he just didn't know it. That's a great story. He just didn't know it. So you left Texas right after you got sober?
1: No, I went to Boston in 87, so I was
0: three years sober. So you were three years sober, Doug is still your sponsor, by this point, you've worked the steps yeah. with him. Were you sponsoring anybody at that point?
1: Uh, yeah. I had a, uh, My first sponsor, his name is August. His name is Augie.
0: Wow. I knew Augie. Did you really? Yeah.
1: So one of the things that happened was uh, one of my experiences in the program was uh, Doug had me Said He goes, uh, I was complaining about something. I was always complaining about something. Mm-hmm. So he said, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go over to, there was a treatment center right by, not far from where I lived. It was where young people went. Because mm-hmm. you're going to go over there and you're going to call this person. He gave me the phone number. So he gives me the number. He tells us call and speak to Melanie, whatever her name was. Right. Tell her that you're my sponsee and that you've got X amount of time in sobriety, whatever it was. So I think it was four months, five months, six months. Right. And I was willing to lead a meeting over at the treatment center. So, anyway, you know, she arranged it. So, anyway, I go over there, and you know and I'm thinking, wow, these young minds, right? <laughs> 16, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, you know, and I'm pontificating up there. Right. How sober I am and how great it is, blah, 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 blah. I get down, and they're asking me for phone numbers, and I'm giving my phone number out left and <laughs> right, right? And I uh, just call me anytime. So, they all started calling me. What I didn't know, they couldn't get out unless they had a sponsor. Oh. They're calling me at... 10, 11, 12, (laughs) 1, 2. They call me all the time. And one of them kept calling me. His name was August. And I ended up being his sponsor. And then we went through the steps together, just the way Doug was taking me through the steps. Same thing. He passed
0: away. How long 2001. Mm. God, it seems like just yesterday. Mm. He was a good man, too. I liked him a lot. When
1: I first got sober, I was sober about a year and a half, and he moved back to Louisiana for a little while before he came back.
0: Right.
1: And while he was gone is when I did, I don't know, it was probably in the first six months, but I ended up doing my four-step with somebody else uh, because he wasn't there. I, know, see. I I did it, and we were still talking, but I had to do it with somebody, so I did it with this guy named Larry, Larry E. And uh, so I told my story to Larry. I didn't follow directions very well, mm-hmm. so I mean, I just wrote this dissertation. Mm-hmm. And I just wrote this book about all my shit and all my stuff. I got all done, and he said, Okay, great. Now we have a trash can cover. We burnt yeah. it, and, you know, threw it away and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Go home and think about it, right? I go home and I do all that. The next thing I do is I read. It says, You know, you got to go back to your inventory, right? <laughs> yeah. like, it's burnt. It's burnt. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> so I know they tricked me because yeah. I didn't do it right the first time. So anyway, I started to do, it, had to do it the second time and did it right. And, wrote my columns, wrote all my stuff. And
0: And this is happening within the first year? This is all in the first, yeah, first six months. At three years, you move up to Boston. How long were you in Boston? Three years. Did Doug have you get a new sponsor at that point, or were you doing everything long distance? Well, Doug started getting
1: ill. He ended up going to Kentucky at the time. We really weren't talking that much anymore. So I I got a sponsor up there, and there was a meeting, a lunchtime meeting. It was like two blocks from my office, so I started going over there. And it was Two days away, mm-hmm. so that was the only meeting I went to. So I went to a meeting two days away. Well, I was in Houston. I was going to meetings six, five, six, seven days away. Well, I went all the time, and no one else to do.
0: But obviously, there were more meetings than that in Boston.
1: Yeah, there was more meetings, but but you didn't go. It became easier just to go to two meetings away.
0: When you were up in Boston, what was your relationship with AA in Boston like compared with Houston?
1: Well, that was what happened. So when you just go to meetings a couple of days a week, uh-huh. then you start missing one of those. Next thing you know, you're going to a meeting once a week. And you're not getting to know anybody. Uh-huh. So I wasn't accountable anymore to anybody. And the meetings, they were different. So they were, they were an hour and 15 minutes. The speaker spoke for half an hour, and then you had a 45-minute conversation. So every meeting was the same. And the meeting I found in the town that I lived in was in a room there were 400 people there. It was like an auditorium. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, was, it was actually a basketball room that had chairs, and they spoke at a microphone. The meeting in Malden that I would go to was, was this big, huge meeting. That's where I met the guy that supposedly sponsored me, but I only talked to him like five times in two years. That was it, huh? Yeah, I just, I wasn't doing a lot of AA there.
0: So is it safe to say your program really took a hit during that three years? Yes.
1: It took a hit for another three years after I got back, too. Why? Because I moved a lot, and I didn't find a home group. And it took me a while. Then my brother got sick, and my brother died, and then my program turned around.
0: When did your brother die?
1: 1997.
0: 1997. What were the circumstances? He died of uh,
1: alcoholism. He died of liver failure. Man, it came on, no one knew what was going to happen. All of a sudden, he went to the hospital He got a call. His brother's in in intensive care.
0: Was he an IV drug user as well?
1: All of us were, but we we all got hepatitis together, all three of us. We all got the same brand of it, too. See, I got sober in 84. They didn't. Now, he ended up getting sober for about five years. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was in, uh, I think it was 89 through 94. Mm-hmm. I think it was about five years. My sister was sober at the time. I was sober at the time. My brother was sober at the time. Our family was great. Wow. We'd get together in Syracuse. We'd go up and we'd go to meetings together. and yeah, I ran into my sister once in Maine when I was living in Florida, uh-huh. and, uh, she, and I mean we had a great time together. You know, she was so everybody was sober, everybody was going to meetings, everything was great.
0: So there's this period of time where everything is working out in with Paul and his siblings.
1: Yeah, my sister had ten years, my brother had five, I had probably a nine because my sister had a year more than me.
0: So how, how long had you been sober when your brother passed? Uh,
1: 97, so
0: 13 years. Your sister was still sober? They both started drinking
1: again. They both started using again. Huh. My sister started using it 10 years. My brother started at 5. My brother, got, uh, he hurt his back. He ended up on coding and that was it. Never got sober again. Huh. He was an executive at Kraft in Chicago. He had a mm-hmm. wife, lived in a million-dollar house, suspect in the early 90s. He was hitting it big. Two kids, you know, trophy wife, everything
0: was great. So his drug addiction reignited. Reignited and that was it. He was
1: divorced, he was lost his job, he was living Mm. in his car. Took a year. It was bad. And then three years later he died. Never got sober again. I went and saw him once, Howard, he was living in his car and he called me. He wanted to come and live with me. And I said, Yes, but you had to go to treatment first. You come out of treatment, I'll do anything I can for you. Mm. You can come live with me, you can stay with me, anything, but you can't come to my house and drink. I can't have it. Mm. I had a daughter then, and I didn't want to watch it. It's ugly. Mm-hmm. And he told me that day, he said, I wouldn't be happy until I kicked stones on his grave. And he didn't talk to me again until I went up to see him. He got a settlement with Kraft, and so he was set. He got a long-term disability, paid a bunch of back payments, he paid all his alimony off, but he, he just started, he lived in my mother's basement and went to methadone maintenance every day. That was what he did, that was his life.
0: While his liver was deteriorating. Failing, yeah
1: just it stopped working. And he went to the emergency room and he died eleven days later.
0: So in nineteen ninety seven were they doing very many liver transplants?
1: Yeah, he just was too sick. Yeah, you know, we were waited. We were there. We were, I was up there for ten days with him. He never get never woke up, never saw me. Mm. But my mother and I were there and my sister came and his wife came and he was really
0: sick. Sounds like a really sad day in your family.
1: He was um five nine hundred and sixty five pounds. Mm. When I saw him he was five ninety weighed two forty. It was just huge. It was all, all fluid.
0: Yeah, his body couldn't process. Couldn't process anything.
1: He was in intensive care. He crashed twice while we were there. They saved him. They kept trying to get him. Finally, a doctor came in and said, he's not healthy. He'll never survive. And we can't, we can't give a liver to somebody this sick.
0: So this was you and your sister that were with him? Me and my mother. My, si- my sister already left. She couldn't handle it. She left, because she was already using. She was high in the hospital. So you're watching your brother, and your mother's watching her son die in the hospital. Yeah, he died while we were there. That's a sad thing that happened.
1: Yeah. My sister died in uh, 2012. What were the circumstances of her? She died of liver failure. Same thing. Oh, my God. She could
0: never stop again. Was your mother still alive when she passed?
1: Yeah, my mother's still alive today. My father died. My father died in 2001. He didn't even know his son died. He was in, he was in hospital. He had Alzheimer's. He, was, he didn't know what was going on.
0: So your mother's had to bury two of her three kids. Two children. Yep. From the same disease. My sister's funeral. The only people
1: there were me, my mother, one of my mother's friends, and two women from the church that came over to all the funerals. Mm-hmm. That was it. She was alone. She just died alone. I mean, it's a lone. It's a lonely disease. Yeah.
0: Some people's programs get invigorated when they're going through tough times. Mine did when my brother died. Yeah. What were the, how did that look? I just went, I got to do something. I, I can't. I. Had you slacked up by that point? Yeah, I was pretty slack then. I wasn't going a lot.
1: I was going, but just not a lot. Yeah.
0: So you weren't a regular at meetings at that time. No, I didn't have a
1: sponsor. I wasn't talking to anybody. Hmm. Yeah, I quit talking to Doug probably two years before that. Matter of fact, I was embarrassed
0: to talk to him. Yeah, because you hadn't talked to him, so you'd feel bad about talking to him because you hadn't talked to him in so long. That's all right. But I started going to meetings seven days a week. That was back here? Yeah. Okay, so you're back in town. Mm-hmm. Your brother passes away, or did you start ramping up your meetings when he was sick?
1: Yeah, soon, as soon as my brother died, after I came home, yeah. I just went, i got to do something different. I can't live like this anymore. I, I, was, I was terrified.
0: What was your spiritual life like at that point?
1: You know, I um my relationship with my God changed because I went from a Catholic and recovered from that to God that I really believed in. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I choose to call him God, but my higher power in me, I mean, mm-hmm. he's my, that's my foundation. I know that what's got me through those five years of going to very seldom meetings, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there just weren't a lot. I can't count them. I can I don't know. But anyway, um, when I started going back to meetings, because I had time, you know, I mean, I wasn't really questioning a lot because people would, i walk in, they'd say, you know, you give your sobriety date, right? And i like give my sobriety, July 11, 1984, and I'm in a meeting, I mean, it's like, this is 1997, 1998, 1999, I've got 13, 14, 15 years. Yeah. You know, not a lot of people had 15 years. They make a lot of
0: assumptions, don't
1: they? Yeah, they just thought I had it all together. So I can pontificate with the best of them. But what happened was, I just, it took me back to my program. All the mm-hmm. stuff that I previously learned, I spent years spending time on doing all the footwork, doing all the steps, doing everything. But I dug in, got another sponsor, got involved, got in the middle of it. We ran a big book study for, it took 15 months to get through it, every Friday, mm. every Friday. I went to that meeting mm. Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and I went to another one on, on Mondays. So mm. I just started going, I was going to meetings five days a week. So I, I needed to do that. And Catherine and I started going to chapter nine. So it's another night meeting we went to.
0: That's amazing. So as a result of your brother's passing, you become reconnected with the program. It sounds like you were more dis- disconnected than maybe you're willing to let on. Like.
1: Yeah, I was pretty disconnected.
0: And I get that because every now and then when I am not at a meeting for whatever reason, people don't see me for a week or two. They're like, where are you? Where you been? Where you? Are? And that feels almost uncomfortable. That feels almost like I feel almost ashamed I haven't been there.
1: Yeah, and when you, when you don't go to a regular meeting, no one knows you. So all of a sudden it was easy because no one ever called me. So I wasn't reaching out to anybody. I wasn't talking to people. So you got yourself a new home group? Found a home group, found people. Mm-hmm. People would call me. The next thing you know, I'm... Start to sponsor people again all of a sudden i've got sponsees mm. and you're in the middle you have 15 years and i got mm. 20 years i got 21 years 22 years you know my time keeps going on sponsoring more and more people mm-hmm. you know i just start you know, things just start happening
0: now when did you and Catherine? we got married in 2001 2001 so you were married to your second wife till 99 so 84 to 99 so about 15 years in that marriage Actually, we got together in 79, so it was 20 years. 20 years of that marriage, a period of time in between, and then you're married to Catherine since, since 2001.
1: Yeah, with 21 years, November 3rd.
0: Now, was she the first of, of your wives to embrace the program? She
1: was in recovery when we met. So we met at work. Uh-huh. And uh, when we we travel, we'd, a work event, we had a group. We were the people that were in recovery. Uh-huh. Catherine, myself, and there was two other people.
0: You had people to be accountable at work.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, my business, it was a drinking business. Yeah. we go to events, people would be drinking, there was booze everywhere. We just didn't
0: partake. What's it like being married to somebody in the program? Great. Share a common language. So that's the secret. And we learn how to
1: share what's going on
0: with us. What areas are taboo? Between my wife and I? I mean, with regard to your programs.
1: We don't. We don't talk about our conversations with sponsors. Uh huh. I won't tell her what I talk about with my sponsors. She doesn't tell me what she talks about with her sponsors. It's really private. That's taboo.
0: Yeah. The reason I was asking is because for a while my wife was involved with Al-Anon, and from my experience with Al-Anon, going to some meetings over the years, when her behavior would be a certain way, I would suggest to her that she do something. Al-Anon-esque, you know, like, listen, you know, you seem really out of sorts. Why don't you call your sponsor? When was the last meeting you went to? I'm not indicting, you know, her behavior, but she took it personally that I would even say that almost as like, I've got the certain key to your life. Yeah, I would never say that to my wife. Never. So you've never said to her, why don't you go to a meeting? No, her program's up to her. That's what I was going for when I said taboo. That's probably not taboo, but the whole idea of Don't try and run somebody else's program.
1: Yeah, it's not my business. Her program's her business. Yeah. She's been sober 28 years now. When we met, well, we met at work in 96. I was only sober 12 years. But when we got married in 2001, I was sober 17 years, and she was sober seven.
0: So you guys are living this sober life together since 2001. And you said you had a a daughter. Mm -hmm. Did you guys have any more children? No. I've started seeing you at this meeting that we were at this evening a number of years ago, and I'm trying to think how many it, it was. It's probably been eight or ten. Eight or ten years. Yeah. I've been coming here a while now. I've, I've just adopted this
1: as my meeting. This is my go-to meeting.
0: And I'm glad you're here. You've really added a lot to this meeting. Oh, I, was, I, love it. I I was looking around the room tonight, and between you and me and Jack of all the men in the room, we had the most sobriety. Mm -hmm. And I've only got, I've got less than 30, I'm going on 35, but you're at 38. Jack's way up at 51, 51, 52. But, um, so what's life been like for you over the years since you recommitted to the program? You mentioned sponsees, you mentioned working working the steps. What have been some of the highlights during that time?
1: One of the things that's happened, you
0: know, of course you know about my health, yeah. So
1: my health has changed my life in, in more ways than just physically being healthy again. How so? Well, I didn't know I was going to survive, mm. and I was really sick. And I really didn't realize how sick I was till I was really sick.
0: And this was liver?
1: Yeah, so My liver was failing. And, you know, my experience with liver failure was I watched brother and sister both die of it. So, I mean, I was close to my hepatologist. I mean, I started seeing my hepatologist when my brother died. And we started treating my hepatitis C back in nineteen ninety seven. And I didn't get transplanted until you know, twenty twenty.
0: Did you go through that therapy that Yeah. Multiple times. Interferon.
1: Interferon. The...
0: And then the one that's supposed to cure it. I finally got that in twenty fourteen. Was it too late by then yeah. to do any good?
1: Well, it stopped I don't have the disease anymore. But my liver wouldn't heal. It was it was it was always a when, it was never an if. Mm. So what we did was we prolonged it as long as we could. That was the goal. The goal was always to prolong it. Why, get, why go through it until you actually have to? Yeah. So every time I did a therapy, it would extend my liver life. So we thought of it that way. We was always waiting to get a cure. and Then we finally got a cure, and we were hopeful that maybe my liver would turn around, but it never did. It never
0: did. And then it just got progressively worse. So what year was that cure?
1: I think I got I think I got cured in 2014. Might have been 2015. One of those two
0: years. So seven or eight years ago, you you got the cure, but I remember you were you were getting sicker and sicker. Sicker and sicker. I remember you were on the list for the transplant. I
1: got on the list in April 2020. So we were already shut down. You know, COVID was going on. Yeah. But I got on the list, they had to do a procedure called a uh, tips procedure, which is mm-hmm. a literally a liver bypass. They just stick a tube between it because my liver wasn't functioning anymore; couldn't filter anything. So you had to medicate to clean your blood.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I got encephalopathy a couple times as mm. a result of that. Right, I ended up back in the hospital because I didn't know my name because mm. so my blood was poison.
0: And, and this did. is during the COVID.
1: This is all during COVID. Oh, yeah. The good thing about that was I was I was hidden. I didn't have to go to work. You know, I was working from home. I could hide. But I was able to not lose my job because of my health or go on some kind of disability because of my health. I was able to survive right up until, you know, they took the phone call.
0: What were the challenges that you faced once you were on that list? You and I had a conversation about it, and you said you're at a certain point on the list, and then if something else happens, you move down the list, and then you move up. Yeah, you can move down, yeah. Tell tell me about
1: that. It's a score that you get, Uh and you used to have, have an app Right. based on you, you do blood work and you would type the results of this app and it would give you your score.
0: Yeah.
1: And you had to be within a certain range wow. for that score to, for you to be even on the list if it dropped below. And I remember that uh, you know, there's a lot of things that can affect the health of your liver. Diet's one of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, but when you're, when you're that sick, you do everything you can to eat the best you can. So mm-hmm. I was doing liver cleanses and, you know, just, just trying to do everything I can to eat well because you wanted to be healthy when you got the call anyway. What was happening was my score started dropping. <laughs> so I was like, "Well, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to go farther down on the list, yeah. But uh, because I'm B negative blood, there's not a lot of B negatives. So there's not a lot of, you know, the, the o, is, o is the one, everybody's O. B negative is like 13%. It's really small. So I can only get transplanted by a B negative by a B negative organ. There's no such thing as a universal donor when it comes to organs. You have to have the same blood type as the donor. Yeah, it so can't even be a universal donor type. It has to be B to B. So when a bee would come up, you know, there's only in Texas at Methodist. There's you know in this region there just wasn't a lot of bees. So. I got, you know, I got called. My third one was the one I got. So I got called twice before. They just didn't work out.
0: Oh. I remember when we talked right before you got, I think, that third call, you said something about your liver function being down to 20% or... I was less than that. Well, by then I had the TIPS procedure. It wasn't functioning at all. It was gone. And you were coming to the meeting, I believe. I think I saw you at the meeting. Online. That's where I I saw you. Yeah, online. You were online. Yeah, I come to the meeting every Sunday.
1: It was online. All the meetings were online, right, in 2020.
0: So you get the call in 2020,
1: come and get your new liver. Yeah, they call me up. They say, how fast can I get there? They called me at 1.30, and I was in surgery at 4. And they wouldn't let Catherine in, barely had a chance to say goodbye, didn't know if I was going to wake up. So when you wake up, all of a sudden, everything's different. Everything's different. My view, everything was different. Everything I thought was different. Hmm. It's just that I was here. You know, and I was, uh, I had about five bad days. Mm -hmm. First five days were all touch and go. My platelet count dropped to two. It was really dangerous times.
0: Yeah, the body's body's trying to reject it,
1: isn't it? No, it's just that your platelets are made from liver, spleen, and bone marrow.
0: Okay. Uh huh.
1: And when you get a brand new liver, they, it's not producing much yet. And because I was pretty sick, I just my platelets just dropped. So I was below six for three days, and I got multiple blood transfusions. I got multiple platelet transfusions because wow. you couldn't let it get too low because you'd have a brain bleed and you'd just die. Now I didn't know it was that bad till after I was back in the, the 20s. You know, I mean, they didn't tell me how serious it was. I guess good thing. Yeah, my when my uh, when my surgeon came to see me the day before I left, we sat and we had a long talk, and he told me about all that. He said, didn't I wonder why they were coming in every twice, three times a day? I'm, no, I, I'm in ICU. It just all seemed normal to me. He goes, no, no, no. We were watching you care. We didn't know. You, we gave you multiple medicines. They were all test medicines to see if it was going to work. We needed to stimulate your platelet growth because we thought we were going to lose you. So, I mean, and you don't know that because, I mean, yeah you're alive, but you can't do anything. you got tubes all over you. You're in intensive care. You're kind of a mess.
0: Yeah, and what are they going to tell you? What are they going to tell you? <laughs> I mean, you, know, you might die tonight, you know,
1: but you're in ICU. you got doctors around you all the time. You've got a full-time nurse. Yeah. They're checking on you all the time. And they're in my room every hour.
0: So five days, you're just touch and go. Touch and, and go, and then it turn around. Yeah. And how long were you in the hospital before you were able to get out? Uh, I was in there 17 days.
1: And they had to go back into surgery once. So I got surgery on Sunday. They had to go back on Wednesday. They opened me all back up again because I was bleeding.
0: And they took care of it. And that's the last time you've been open?
1: Yep. Well, they did this. I did their hernia the other day. Same place, exact same station,
0: same scar, same location. They need to install a zipper or something there, don't they? <laughs> That's what I told them. What's well, all good and healed now. So what's fortuitous about all that is that right after that happened, you were right on Zoom. I mean, you were you were there at meetings on Zoom. I saw you. In the hospital. I had something to do. It was great.
1: What I, I didn't know was true and even for a lot of years in recovery, what I didn't know was the strength of the fellowship of the program. Did not understand it. I didn't realize that people would actually be there for you. Yeah. Never felt like anyone was ever there for me in my whole life. I mean, yeah. About my brothers and sisters and yeah. there, no one was there for me. Father was not around.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I moved when I was young. I was in Texas by myself, you know. Mm-hmm. I've been alone my whole life. So the thought of having people be there for me, I had to get a team of people. I had to prepare lists and take them and show them to the transplant coordinators. These are the people that are gonna be taking me to the hospital, so I gotta go to the hospital three days a week when I get out. Somebody's gotta drive me there, and you can't drive for two weeks. Mm -hmm. So who's gonna be doing all that? So I I had to ask people, and I'd ask people, and they'd say, of course, of course I would
0: do that for you. What an exercise in humility, though. I know, and they did it. They actually followed through. Well, I remember you were in the hospital, and we were making announcements about you. Not so much in the meeting that you were in, but I remember doing this at the Thursday meeting. We'd say, you know, Paul's been in the hospital. He got a new liver. Let's all keep him in your thoughts and prayers.
1: No thanks. I heard that was going on. It meant so much to me. But that's the stuff that changed for me. Mm. So all of a sudden, I'm not alone anymore been in recovery a long time, but that changes things because all of a sudden it happened in real life where people were actually there. They walked me through it. I, got to, I didn't have to be alone. I didn't have to do it
0: myself. It sounds almost like coming to the program for the first time. Almost. Almost actually acknowledging that people actually will be
1: there. You're not alone. We're not alone. It's such, it's such a change in my life. Yeah, You know, today, you know, I, if, if I need something, I'm not even afraid to ask. You know, when I had the second surgery, I called somebody. I said, look, I'm, I, I, can't go to, I can't drive tonight, but I want to go to a meeting. I'll be right there. They picked me up, brought me to a meeting. That amazes me. It's just stunning. It wasn't even a question like, well, let me get back to you. It was, of course. Yeah. Of course, even if they weren't going to go to that meeting that night, they knew I needed to go. They came and got me and drove me.
0: Yeah, I always say it's what we do. That's what we do. You know, that's what AAs do. We help each other. We we take care of each other. We pray for each other.
1: I got calls and texts from hundreds of people while I was in the hospital. Hundreds of people. It was was stunning to me. I didn't even know how to respond
0: to people. One of the things I, I always wondered about and worried about was would AA be there for me when I really, really needed it? And I've had the occasion, thank God, not too many times in my sobriety, that it was proven to me. And it got proved multiple times that AA would be there. So now I can feel confident, kind of the same kind of confidence you're you're suggesting here. And going to be there. That's got to be a great feeling. I wanted to ask you, you, you've spoken to how this has changed your life. A man who had been engaged early and then had a hiatus of time when he wasn't having the tragic loss of your brother, which reinvigorated your program. And then, quite literally, your life was saved by getting a liver, a new liver, with the willingness to do what was necessary to get it. And here's this incredible awareness now of people. How do you see your higher power working in all that?
1: Jeez. <laughs> yeah, you know, today I know... Um... These challenges in recovery mm-hmm. from day one. You know, I mean, we, life is life. And, uh, you know, I came to believe that there was a power greater than me and that he could help me. Mm-hmm. I, and I came to believe that. I didn't believe it right away. And I made a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God. As I understood him, I did those things. And I've had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. Hmm. And I carry this message, practice these principles and carry this message in everything I do. When I got to that point, you know, I say the third step prayer twice a day, at least, without fail, every day, all the time. Uh, you know, it's my go-to prayer. What What is that prayer? I turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him, right? Right. That's what I do. That's it. God was so much part of that. I couldn't have done it without, you know, I I never felt that he was on the outside looking in. He was in the room with me, whether it was getting the tips procedure, whether it was draining fluid, whether it was when I got the call, when I was in my room by myself, scared to death I was going to die. And I just, I was okay. You know, he had a, he put people in my life. You know, God doesn't touch me personally. He doesn't like appear to me and talk to me. But he sends people in there all the time. So there was this doctor, who's a Nigerian doctor, mm-hmm. and he'd come in at 6 a.m. every day and he sat outside my room and he'd come in and he'd talk to me. And I, you know, you can't sleep, mm. you know, I had so much shit in me. I couldn't sleep, all the medications, there's, there's no sleeping. You're you're up, I was up four or five days before I got two hours of sleep. Mm. And uh, literally, 24-7, four or five days. Mm-hmm. and. You're, young, you're always laying down, so you're not like, tired, but you really want to sleep. You yeah. want time to go by quicker. It goes by really slow in the hospital. But he'd come in, and a couple mornings he came in, he just sat with me. And he'd, he'd be doing his work, and he'd put his hand on my hand, and, and he just sat there with me. I just didn't huh. even have to be alone. And I know that God put him in that room for me. I know wow. he did. I know he did. He could have he he been anywhere, but he was in there with me. Because I was having a hard time.
0: What an extraordinary, extraordinary. sense of oneness with, with the higher power.
1: Yeah, it was, just, it was just, it was all the nurses, the people that care for you. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's got God all over it to me.
0: And then look at what was waiting for you when you came back in this room of people. This room of people. All men who love you and mm-hmm. respect and honor your sobriety. And I know I certainly do. I, I've learned a lot from you over the years. Before we go, I wanted to ask a question I ask a, a lot of my—it's not as easy as the. what's the first thing you say when you come in the room but, um, or when you get called on. But i like to ask, if you could go back to talk to a—knowing what you know now, with all the experience and everything you've got, the good and the bad, everything else, if you could go back and talk to a younger version of yourself, two parts of this question, how old would that self be and what would you say to him? You know, I think I'd go to me when I remember being youngish
1: and feeling alone. Mm. I'd probably tell myself that I'm not alone. Mm. And I'd just have to reach out and ask. Mm. And that God would be there for me. I didn't have to be alone. And I'd probably have done that when I was young. It could have saved me a lot of heartache. You know, do I want to change my life or go back and redo anything? No, because I, I, I got a gift I could never give. You know I mean? Everything got me where I am. Yeah. So I don't really want to change anything. Um, I would have liked to have just told myself that I didn't have to be alone. I was alone a lot. It was a lonely life for a long time. It really was. And, and even even my first number of years in recovery, even though I was around, but I really wasn't dug in. Yeah. I'm dug in today. I am more in recovery today than I was my first 180 days, my
0: first year, my first three years. Yeah, I can sense that. And, and you're saying it was such a commitment and with such depth that I believe you 100%, 100%. Yeah, that's it. The answer is in the room. It is, isn't it? It's in the book, in the room. It's in the spirit of, of the fellowship of recovery. Right. You just don't have to be alone. Well, it's, it's almost akin to what Doug told you when you first came in or the people in that very first meeting. You never have to drink again, but what the overall message from what we've been talking about today is you never have to be alone. And, you know, maybe that's another message that we should emphasize more often, especially to newcomers, acknowledging the fact that you're sitting there with three weeks, five months, a year and a half. You may be feeling still very isolated, even though you've got that kind of time. Or the assumption of people in the room is you've got five years, so you must be where most people who are working a good program and have a good fellowship are. And yet you're sitting there in isolation at five years. Mm-hmm. That's something to me that with the kind of experience that you have, that I have, that others that are very active in the program have can be given to others. Does that sound like
1: a reasonable thing? I agree 100%. I think that um, I got here alone. I stayed here because I needed to. I found a higher power to walk me through life. Mm -hmm. And then I was given this gift of the fellowship that i didn't know was possible and that people actually care i mean we actually care about each other more than you know i I don't find it anywhere you know even people i work with and people i've worked with in the past you know i mean you know we we, we became good buds and you know we were talking all that stuff but i mean it's not the same
0: yeah it's a difference where you We're just being in the same room, being in the same presence, is therapeutic and healing. And
1: we know each other to our core. Yeah. You know, I know you to your core. I know what makes you turn. Yeah. You
0: know, I just know because I'm the same. And I'm willing to allow you to know me that way. So again, it gives us that, that bond, that connection. The God in me talks to the God in you. And then, as a friend of mine says, then we don't have to drink no whiskey. God speaks to me through you, and I don't have to drink any whiskey. Same, same here. Yeah. Well, this has been just a remarkable opportunity for me to spend some time with you and get to know you so much better than I've ever known you before. And thank you. Howard. I want to thank you for for doing this. I love you. You're a beautiful man and somebody who, I know, wouldn't hesitate for a moment to help anybody anywhere at any time. And to me, that's a mark of a a truly remarkable person. Thank you so
1: much. Thanks for your time. I love doing this too.
0: Well, my friends, that's all for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Paul D., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.